It's a twig off a gum tree, gum leaves, and useful when there's a fly around. I noticed uh, Steve singing before he had a, a fly bothering him, and it uh, would have been good for him to have it. Uh, koala bears like the taste of it, and old bushies do too. Remember over in England many years ago, uh, we'd, uh, we'd been there probably for about a year, Alveda and I, and we travelled down south and uh, stayed in a place and uh, it had a beautiful garden and I couldn't believe it, but in the garden there was a gum tree and uh, I could not resist it to go across and pull off a leaf and start to, uh, to chew it. Leaves come in all kinds of shapes and colours and sizes and... Uh, they, they really, when you see them all together on the tree, they give the tree shape and uh, its beauty, waving in the wind. Sometimes uh, the sight of just a tree by itself is almost breathtaking in its beauty. Have you ever wondered how many leaves there are on a tree? <laughs> I tried to count the, uh, the number of leaves on uh, the tree this came from. The first effort, you know, I counted this little bit and multiplied it roughly by this much and uh, I came up with 2,000 and then I checked and the next time I came up with 5,000. So I thought, well, maybe something on Google. So I Googled number of leaves on a tree and <laughs> I couldn't find uh, a gum tree. I don't know why they didn't have a gum tree there, but I found an oak tree. And did you know that a mature oak tree has 240 thousand leaves on it. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, never thought about that. Um, but a leaf, I also looked up in, uh, in Google about the way the leaf works and it's incredible, you know. Uh, each leaf has a skin on the top and a skin on the bottom. And if you look carefully you can see all sorts of holes in the bottom there. And apparently there are two layers of cells and the bottom layer are all jumbled with spaces that open out through those holes and two cells that actually control the holes to open them and shut them so that um, the, the leaf operates and 240,000 of them operating on a tree would have a huge influence, of course, no matter how big the tree is. And... Uh, I was really amazed to think that these leaves that we use for chasing flies away are actually there functioning as, a, 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 as some kind of a, a biological, chemical um, factory for the tree. The roots are sucking up minerals, salts out of the soil and shooting it up the trunk to these, out through the branches to the leaves. And the leaves with the air that comes in through those holes into the spaces at the bottom, uh, the, the leaves absorb the sun and, uh, I've forgotten the name of it now, photosynthesis of some kind, but it's uh, chloroplast, I think, something rather like that. And uh, it actually turns the salts out of the ground and the light from the sun into life. And the life is the life of that tree. If the tree didn't have leaves, it'd be, I suppose the, the deciduous ones can last over the winter, 
but they have to make their leaves the next summer in order to store up the sugar and the glucose and what else, starch and stuff that's necessary for the tree to live. And I thought that would make a nice little, sort of parable in a way, for us in Cornerstone. Because each one of us are like leaves. And Cornerstone needs us, needs you to be functioning in the way that God made you to function, to take light and to be salt, and to make out of that the life that is going to reflect the kingdom of God in the world. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? <clears throat> uh, the talks this, uh, this muster are focused on that thought out of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, it's called, of uh, the need for us to be salt and light in the world. And my job, essentially, is to, uh, is to simply read through that passage of Scripture because... Uh, one of the things that we really want to do is to make sure that we contextualise what we say uh, properly, to make it so that we're not sharing amongst ourselves here in Cornerstone just good ideas that we have, but that all of those ideas are based soundly in the plan of God and what God has done down through the ages and what's recorded in the Word of God given to us. So... Uh, this is my job and uh, I thought rather than just going straight to the Sermon on the Mount it would be a good idea for us to uh, think about what God has been doing in three stages. The important thing of course is the event itself that happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus went up a hill, sat down, had his disciples around him and began to teach him. I don't know whether it was a fine day or a windy day. Uh, I don't know where in Israel the mountain was. I've been to the mount where it was supposed to have happened. But, um, uh, the thing about it is that it actually did happen, that one day a man sat as a kind of unorthodox rabbi with a group of pretty ragtag disciples around him and said these things, or like they say in legal documents, words to this effect. And um, we, uh, we've been given them because somebody was there and actually wrote them. But the other side of the event is where we need to start because that happened at the end of a long process. Uh, I've been recently meditating on this scripture out of uh, 1 Corinthians. And if I had more confidence, I would here now quote it to you and show that I could memorise it. I see Doc sitting down there and I've envied him all my life, his photographic memory. But uh, I can remember it with some hard work and then I get a little bit nervous standing up here in front of everybody and I forget. So here I am. Uh, the, the passage out of Paul's letter to the Corinthians is where he's... Um, He's writing to a group of Christians who really owed, owed him a lot. He'd actually led them to Christ and founded the church there in Corinth. Uh, but they'd had a few other influences come along and amongst them had been people who were um, much more flamboyant, who were able to express themselves much, much better than Paul 
could, who uh, were able to entertain their audience as well as instruct them. I've always felt jealous of those kind of people too. Paul Rowe sitting there <laughs> can do it without even uh, trying. It, um, uh, Paul over against these people that the Corinthian church were, uh, were thinking were the bee's knees were, was a little bit of a poor comparison. And um, uh, th- this, is, this is as he writes to the Corinthians in this letter. He says... As for me, brothers, when I came to you, I declared the attested truth of God without display of fine words or wisdom. I resolved that while I was with you, I would think of nothing but Jesus Christ, Christ nailed to the cross. I came before you weak as I was then, nervous and shaking with fear. The word I spoke, the gospel I proclaimed, did not sway you with subtle arguments. It carried conviction by spiritual power so that your faith might be built not upon human wisdom, but upon the power of God. That's sort of uh, the first part of the chapter. Then the, the really critical passage is this next paragraph, where Paul wrote, And yet I do speak words of wisdom to those who are ripe for it, not a wisdom belonging to this passing age, nor to any of its governing powers which are declining to their end. I speak God's hidden wisdom, his secret purpose framed from the very beginning to bring us to our full glory. The powers that rule the world have never known it. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But in the words of scripture, things beyond our seeing, things beyond our hearing, things beyond our imagining, all prepared by God for those who love him. These it is that God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And the one expression that uh, I, uh, uh, astonishes me and that I want to share with you now is where Paul wrote, his secret purpose framed from the very beginning to bring you to, uh, no, sorry, to bring us to our full glory. What happened on that mountain, on that hill, when Jesus preached this Sermon on the Mount uh, had its beginnings way back in the purposes of God probably before the universe was brought into existence. That God had always planned that there should be creatures like you and me who maybe don't look much <laughs> you know, uh, by comparison amongst the, in the human race, but his purpose is that ordinary human beings like you and me should, by the things that he had planned to carry out through the ages of history, that we should be brought to our full glory. That says straight away, we're not there yet, and so that excuses a lot of things amongst us, I guess. But uh, God's plan is the most important thing in the whole of existence, that there is a purpose, a purpose by the creator himself that is going to end up with you and me sharing his glory. And you grab a hold of that, just think about it for a little while, that there's a process going on and we're part of it. And uh, that process is is the greatest possible blessing that we could experience. God working on our side to bring us to our full glory.
That's all in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. So the, uh, behind that event 2,000 years ago is the purpose of God as he uh, has framed it and it's a secret that has been revealed step by step through the whole stages of God's revelation to the human race. Uh, some of it was outside of Israel with uh, the, the, uh, the bit that's before Genesis chapter 12, the, the people who uh, were there before the covenant started with Abraham. Uh, there were others outside of that still. Job was not a Jewish person. And God revealed himself there. And I'm sure God revealed himself in many ways uh, to many peoples in, in, in different times. But the thing is that uh, at the core of his purpose was the call of Abraham and the coming eventually in, uh, into history of the nation of Israel. And then in the nation of Israel, this baby that, whose birth we're going to celebrate in just a few weeks' time of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, so that's the first stage, back in the purposes of God. The second stage is the event itself. Uh, I wonder if we were there, what, what we would have thought about it, whether we'd have been impressed by Jesus. Uh, I'm sure there were a lot of people who stood back thinking, just another rabbi. Uh, probably others who were standing fairly close who thought, uh, it's too complicated, that uh, doesn't make sense to me. Um, there are only a handful, really, who took the time and made the effort to really concentrate on what Jesus was saying. And amongst them, I believe, was uh, Matthew, the tax collector, who probably could write with shorthand. He would have needed to have been uh, a fairly quick recorder of things in his duties as a tax officer. So uh, Matthew would have taken very careful note. Um, <laughs> amongst others, most likely. <clears throat> uh, but then this side of that event is the writing of this uh, gospel according to Matthew. And we know about the event and we know about God's purpose because we have the scripture that opens up to us the things that God has done and the things that God has intended. Which is why we want to take special notice of the scripture and why I want to take uh, this gospel of Matthew and instead of starting with chapter 5, I'll probably get into trouble for this, not if I finish before, by within another 15 minutes. Anyway, I'm going to do it. Uh, starting with chapter 1 and verse 1. And uh, just uh, take notice. I'm not going to try and entertain you, but I do want you to get something of the, uh, the feel of the writer of this gospel, of Matthew's account of Jesus' life. And obviously he couldn't write everything that he, uh, he knew about Jesus, the things that he'd observed, uh, at the end of John's Gospel, John said, if all the things that Jesus had done were recorded in books, there wouldn't be enough room in the whole world for the books that had to be written, would have to have been written. Um, I think he might have been exaggerating a little bit, but it does point out 
that if you just write a short account of somebody's life, there's an awful lot that you have to leave out. And that other side of that means is that you have to be very careful about the things that you choose to put in. What I want to say is that Matthew chose to put in what he put in because he had a reason for it. And it's uh, not just a matter of us reading what he wrote and uh, understanding what he meant in those bits, but I think standing back long enough to, uh, to catch his purpose overall as he wrote this, uh, this gospel according to Matthew. So I've got, um, I think there's eight chapters, I figured, that covered uh, those first three, four chapters of uh, the start of Matthew's gospel. Maybe not chapters, let's call them paragraphs. That there are eight paragraphs that lead in to the Sermon on the Mount. And the first one begins in chapter 1, verse 1. And it's, uh, it starts off in the New English Bible as a table of the descent of Jesus Christ. And it goes on then to list uh, Jesus' genealogy, which is a pretty strange way to begin a book about somebody's life. Well, it is to us, but it, didn't, uh, it made a lot of sense to the Jews. They really did think it was important to know uh, your forebears and where you fitted into the big picture of, of, uh, of Israel. In fact, in Ezra, when uh, Ezra was lining up people to work in the temple, and they had to be Levites, there were two families that he rejected because their, their records weren't good enough somewhere towards the end of, uh, of Ezra. Um, and from a Jewish point of view, it's pretty pretty uh, impressive that Jesus could trace his genealogy, or I'm not sure that Jesus did himself, but somebody researching it, Matthew, could trace his genealogy back all the way to, to Abraham, the founder of the, uh, of, the Israel, of the Jewish people, the Hebrews. And uh, Matthew makes a point there of it being uh, divided into three lots of 14. He covers the history of Israel, from Abraham through to David, who built the nation, from David through to the exile, which was when uh, God punished the nation for failing to do what they were called into existence to do, and then uh, another 14 generations, he says, from, uh, from the exile until the birth of Jesus. Uh, that's just I, in there awful lot to be said but the main thing is to grasp the fact that Jesus is very very definitely the product of uh, that call of Abraham and the Hebrew nation and, uh, and, and Israel. The second paragraph begins down in chapter 1 verse 18. <clears throat> Am I getting these shown up on the overhead projector? Uh, <laughs> Andrew? Yeah, they're not there aren't they? Um, any of it at all, or I can't hear you from here. <laughs> oh, okay. <clears throat> the next paragraph, and maybe Andy, you can show them when we get that far. Next paragraph, chapter one, verse eighteen. This is the story of the birth of Messiah, and of course, this is to do with the virgin birth and uh, and. Uh, 
the pretty amazing things that uh, God did in order to bring his Messiah into the world. And uh, the comment there is that she, uh, the angel told um, Joseph was that she was with child by the Holy Spirit, that this was a work of God. And it amazes me sometimes when I reflect on this, that the work of God, God who brought the universe into being by his word, uh, the God who had this purpose from the very beginning framed to bring us to our full glory, this God could focus his purpose down into one young woman and her pregnancy formed by the Holy Spirit. Can you grasp the, how amazing it is that God should you know, bring his whole purpose down to such a kind of a seemingly insignificant point in the history of the, of, the, of the nation of Israel. But God does that sort of thing. And as you sit here as one of the leaves on the tree of Cornerstone, um, God's purpose can be singled out right upon your life for you to fulfill some really important function in the work of the kingdom of God. Don't ever let anybody convince you that that is not true. You are incredibly complex, like a leaf on a tree, built to do what is necessary to do. And God can choose out of the 240,000 leaves on the tree one particular leaf for the most uh, mind-blowing purpose so while you're making decisions about what you're going to do next year, don't lose the, lose the perspective that God has a purpose in the world, that that purpose is working out and that it's the main event, and that as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are part of that purpose in the end to be brought to your full glory, but on the way to be singled out like Mary was for a very specific purpose and you might not know what it's all about and it might even endanger a lot of relationships like this endangered Mary's relationship with her husband-to-be. True? Think soberly about the choices you make, little leaf, because <laughs> you're not just a little leaf. You're part of God's plan in some way or other. The next paragraph is where it starts in chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus was born at Bethlehem during the reign of Herod. After his birth, astrologers from the east arrived in Jerusalem, asking, where is the child who is born to be king of the, of the Jews? Um, that, of course, the story goes on to talk of uh, the way that Herod, who somebody said was insanely jealous, went to all kinds of uh, lengths to try and prevent God's purpose is working out through one young girl in uh, Bethlehem. And it took some very serious decisions by uh, her husband to, uh, to move right away from the nation, to stay hidden in a different community altogether until it was safe to move back into Israel. 
and, and that brings to mind as well, and I think that, um, I think that Matthew is wanting this message, message to get across, that uh, even though God's purposes are working out in individual lives and could be immensely significant, yet uh, you're under scrutiny by the enemy of the kingdom, and that it's God's purpose, uh, that enemy's purpose to thwart God's purpose to bring you to your full glory and to let you use the incredible gifts that God has given you for furthering his kingdom. Okay? Serious thoughts. Um, The next paragraph starts with chapter 3 and uh, verse 1. And uh, it starts off, About that time, John the Baptist appeared as a preacher in the Judean wilderness. His theme was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is upon you. Um, John the Baptist, as the forerunner, was was, um, given the message that uh, the time had been fulfilled for God to make a really significant um, move in bringing about his plan, his purposes. Uh, he was saying the kingdom of God is about to come and he was calling people to repentance. And I think that's one of the things to grasp that we also need to grasp, that that plan of God that existed right back at the beginning, which is seen in events in the world and recorded in the scripture, um, that purpose of God is speaking about a program that's working step by step by step by step until a time when God comes back in power to take his rightful place in the history of the human race. When Jesus Christ returns, the world, it says, in Isaiah is going to be, in Jeremiah, I think, is going to be filled with the knowledge of God like the waters fill the sea. And it's on the agenda. (laughs) And... It's kind of in the scripture there are many sort of indications that this is um, of the sort of things that are going to precede this coming of Jesus Christ. The major one, of course, the second coming of Jesus Christ, the major preceding event would have been, has been the first coming of Jesus Christ and the giving of the Holy Spirit and the calling into existence of people like ourselves. But... Um, it speaks about Israel once again becoming part of God's purposes, I believe, in uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 21, when Jesus was speaking on the Mount of uh, Olivet uh, just before his, uh, his death and resurrection. Um, yeah, I'd better not get waylaid because I'm going to run out of time here, but <clears throat> just wanting to say that we should keep our eye on the signs of the times. It used to be you know, a lot of people would be uh, trying to work out whether Hitler was the Antichrist and whether the uh, Treaty of Rome and the uh, European Common Market were the, the ten-headed beast. And there are a lot of um, pretty silly things being said at times, but the fact that silly things are being said doesn't discredit, well it does discredit I suppose, but it doesn't take away from the fact that God still has an agenda, that he has given us signs that there is, 
signals in the world at the present time that uh, we are approaching to the end of history as we know it and the beginning of the kingdom of God in its fullness. And I think we should take that seriously. The next, uh, the next paragraph, I believe, is chapter 4, verse 1, where um, there, it starts off, Jesus was then led away by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It was the conflict with Satan. And uh, yeah, just the comment on that is, even though you might be a little leaf on the tree, you may well have a very, very important role to play but, uh, and, and Satan is going to tempt you, but he's going to tempt you, would you believe it, not through your weaknesses, but through your strengths. You know? He tempted Jesus to misuse his power and uh, to, um, what was the second one? Was, uh, uh, oh, that's right, to jump off the temple, which is to, to provoke wonder and sensation and uh, to get people to follow him on the basis of uh, sensationalism. And the last one was the temptation to compromise. But uh, all of those temptations were in order that the kingdom might be fulfilled and that the role that Jesus had to bring about salvation to the world was, um, was, uh, uh, could be fulfilled by these alternative ways that uh, Satan offered. But... Jesus' choice was to do it God's way. And that meant uh, the, um, the cross and the suffering and uh, the role of the suffering servant to take away the sin of the world. Uh, next chapter is in, uh, I believe, chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 says, When he heard the, that John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and settled at Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee in the district of Zebulun and Naphtali. <clears throat> um, just that little thing there that he went from his hometown of Nazareth and set up headquarters at, at uh, Capernaum. And I think that there's something very important there that we could easily miss. Uh, when God called Abraham, he said, go out from your own country to a country I'll show you. Uh, one of the great temptations that stop us from moving ahead and fulfilling our, our function as, uh, in the kingdom of God, to fulfill our call that uh, God has upon us is our attachment to our homes, to the familiar, to the places that we know. And... Uh, you leaves on the tree of, uh, of Cornerstone have already made a huge step in just choosing to leave your home and to live for a year in a community as you have done. That has been a, uh, a, a response to Jesus Christ that has been, I believe, something really significant for you to detach you from the familiar and to open you up to the new world, to the new job ahead. Jesus had spent 30 years in Nazareth, or most of 30 years in Nazareth, and during that time I'm sure he did everything that he was supposed to do very well, uh, fulfilled all the duties that were inherent upon him as a tradesman, a carpenter, as a neighbour, as a son, as a friend, 
maybe even as a citizen, don't think he probably was mayor, but uh, uh, the point about it is that Jesus had spent 30, 30 years doing the ordinary very, very well, and when he got the signal that it was time, he stepped forward and faced the temptation from Satan, but he made that gesture of moving from uh, Nazareth to Capernaum, I think, as a kind of setting his, uh, setting his sights on what was ahead, cutting himself off from what was past to do what God wanted him to do. If you're being called to do something that's going to mean you won't get back to the beach very often <laughs> or back home to your friends and think seriously about the purpose of God right back at the very beginning framed for, to, for, to bring us to our full glory, to bring you to your full glory, and make the choice following the example of Jesus Christ to move ahead. Uh, two other paragraphs there. One was that, um, oh no, in, very, very important in chapter 4, verse 17, is uh, from that day Jesus began to proclaim the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is upon you. He preached with authority he preached with certainty and he preached with the conviction that what he was saying came from the Father who had sent him. But oftentimes you hear people say that the, uh, the essence of Jesus' message is the Sermon on the Mount. It's all about turning the other cheek and uh, not resisting evil, about um, being very generous and loving and gentle and kind. And uh, there's no doubt at all that Jesus said all those things. But that was not the essence of Jesus' message. Jesus' message was that the kingdom of God had arrived. The future had been brought into the present and that men and women are being challenged to join in God's purposes by belonging to the kingdom of God. That is Jesus' message. And don't ever forget it. We're called out of the world to be in the kingdom. But the kingdom at the present time is a kind of a a secret that uh, we're trying to share with others, we're trying to get others to come into it, but it's calling us to be part of God's purposes and part of God's plan, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the world around about us, for the sake of God's purposes working out, and he's going to use people like you and me to do it. Um, that's the message, and then... Um, the next thing Jesus did was in chapter 4, verse 18, 20. Oh, the next thing that Matthew points out that Jesus did is chapter 4, verse 18 to 20. Uh, Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee when he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, come with me and I'll make you fishers of men. They left their nets at once and followed him. John's Gospel shows that uh, this wasn't the first time Jesus had met them and that they were already kind of uh, impressed by Jesus' teaching and in a way his disciples, uh, but they hadn't made that commitment to go uh, totally with this new unorthodox rabbi and uh, to understand his message and to put it into practice. So uh, this was the call. And I like the thought that they were men who uh, had, had been through the discipline of a trade. They knew what it was to work hard, to make a buck, uh, to compete with the 
other things that were going on around about. I think that's one of the things that is missing when we have uh, leaders in the church who have only had theological training. Uh, we need the people who have been there with the workaday world and have the, out of the, the natural wisdom that comes from working with your hands, working with your head, working with, uh, with something that's achieving in the world, not just uh, thinking. Um, and let me just put this on you as well. <clears throat> I believe that most of you really want to make your lives count for God. When the Son of God was here and he had this vision of what had to be done and uh, he knew that he was the one singled out by God on whom the responsibility of the salvation of the world had come, the first thing he did was to look for a team to be with, a group of others to go with him. And uh, you, you might not continue in Cornerstone, but if you move into another way of serving Jesus Christ, make sure that you have a team with you. The reason why we send you for one year to argue with one another and to put up with dirty dishes and not people not making their beds and not cleaning their house and, and all that sort of thing is because teams are so important. Jesus worked with a team. And you need to work with the team too. And we'd love you to come back into Cornerstone and work with our teams, but uh, there's no doubt whatsoever that you can achieve a whole lot more as part of a team than you could by yourself. And then finally his strategy, he went around preaching in the synagogues. And uh, the synagogues were the places where people who were genuine about understanding God um, got together. Oftentimes they didn't get much out of it, but it was the place where they were, and Jesus, while they let him, preached in the synagogues. And uh, he, it's actually the strategy's worth looking at there. It says that... Um, uh, yeah, went around the whole of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and curing whatever illness or infirmity there was among the people. Um, preaching, which is declaring the kingdom. Teaching, which is what we're going to read through very quickly right now. And uh, then uh, curing all kinds of illnesses. Now, um, I don't have the gift of healing. And uh, sure, some people have, but not very many really do. And uh, I, I was trying to think about, well, Jesus' strategy, preaching, yes, teaching, yes, but how do you help people? Well, there's a million ways that you can help people. Just work out what they need and what opportunities and avenues there are available. Um, Jono just did that community needs up in Coonabarabran and... I recommend that you read his paper because he's come up with things that we as Christians could do that would be like Jesus did in curing people in order to get their attention, in order to have their respect, in order to get a hearing from them so they hear what we preach and they hear what we teach. And then finally the teaching. And just to put this in perspective very clearly, the preaching came first, the kingdom of God. And the teaching was not, just to the, was not to the world at all, actually, as it is right now. The teaching 
was to those who became members of the kingdom of God. And what you read in the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably not the best way to call it, it's more like poetry, so it would be the poem on the Mount, really. But what you read there is the way of the kingdom that Jesus left with those who decided to follow him. And uh, these are the principles that, uh, that we should live by or try to live by. The important thing is you don't get to heaven by living these principles. You live these principles because you're on the way to heaven. You live these principles because you're in the kingdom. And that's why God knows, you know, that where his purpose framed from the very beginning is to bring us to our full glory. God knows that we haven't got to our full glory yet, but this is what the full glory would look like. And if you love Jesus Christ, if he really has um, touched your life, then you will have a passion to do your best to live this way. And of course the Spirit of God has given to us so that uh, we have every chance of getting close, <laughs> maybe even getting there. And uh, we have the grace and the mercy of God to forgive us when we fail. Okay, listen to the teaching of Jesus. How blessed are those who know that they are poor. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. How blessed are the sorrowful. They shall find consolation. How blessed are those of a gentle spirit. They shall have the earth for their possession. How blessed are those who hunger and thirst to see right prevail. They shall be satisfied. How blessed are those who show mercy. Mercy shall be shown to them. How blessed are those whose hearts are pure. They shall see God. How blessed are the peacemakers. God shall call them his sons. How blessed are those who have suffered persecution for the cause of Christ. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. How blessed you are when you suffer insults and persecution and every kind of calumny for my sake. Accept it with gladness and exaltation, exaltation, for you have a rich reward in heaven in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. You are salt to the world. And if salt becomes tasteless, how is its saltiness to be restored? It's now good for nothing but to be thrown away and trodden underfoot. You are light for all the world. A town that stands on a hill cannot be hidden. When a lamp is lit, it's not put under the mill tub, but on the lampstand where it gives light to everyone in the house. And you, like the lamp, must shed light among your fellows, so that when they see the good you do, they may give praise to your Father in heaven. I want to put a parenthesis in there before I stop. The last of the Beatitudes is, How blessed are those who have suffered persecution for the cause of right. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. How blessed are you when you suffer insults and persecution of every kind of calumny for my sake. Um, we here in Australia have it pretty easily. They pass laws all the time that are making it more and more difficult for uh, us to live freely as Christians. I'm a little bit worried. Down in Swan Hill we had a long discussion with one of Marty's Muslim friends. And uh, in Victoria, a couple of preachers in a church spent years, lost their houses and uh, were, um, had to battle through the courts for defamation and for scaring two Muslims who happened to come along and hear them. Uh, 
in a, in a Christian church and uh, were found guilty of that uh, vilification bill uh, in Victoria. Um, and I'm wondering, hmm, I wonder if this bloke is going to set me up and I'll spend the next... Well, I don't have any houses. I'd have to spend the next few years sitting in jail, actually. But, uh, yeah, uh, I've got a heap of stuff here I hoped I'd have time to read, but I'm going to choose just one. This is, um, right now, an, uh, a student in a university in Afghan. Uh, uh, Afghan? Afghanistan. <laughs> an Afghan's journalism student. Um, just a month or so ago, his death sentence was changed to a sentence of 20 years in jail. Uh, this is well known around the world and uh, all kinds of... Uh, it's reported here in Times Online. At, uh, I'll read this out. An Afghan journalism student sentenced to death for allegedly insulting Islam had his conviction upheld but his sentence reduced to 20 years in prison by an Afghan Central Appeal Court today. The prosecution alleged that Sayed Perwes Kambashk, 24 years old, downloaded from the internet and distributed an article by an Iranian writer questioning some of the tenets of Islam relating to women's rights. He's always denied the charges. He's alleged to have added three paragraphs to the offending article himself, one of which reads in part, this is the real face of Islam. The prophet Muhammad wrote verses of the Holy Quran just for his own benefit. Um, this is from his trial documents. At his appeal court trial today, five professors of Balkh University, where the defendant was a student, claimed that Kambashk disrupted classes by asking anti-Islam and insulting questions. Let's get the picture right. You know, this is a university, right, where people are supposed to ask questions. And five professors um, are uh, witnesses against this student because he disrupted classes by asking anti-Islam and insulting questions. Kambashk was originally sentenced to death by a local court in the northern city of Mazar-e-Sharif following his arrest in October 2007. Following today's hearing, defence lawyer Mohammed, what you call it, <laughs> said his client would appeal to Afghanistan's Supreme Court. Uh, Mr Nuristani, his counsel, his lawyer, has, repeat, has faced repeated death threats, as has his client. It's drawn widespread criticism from uh, uh, around the world. Kambash claimed he made a confession after being tortured by officials from the Afghan security services. Um, the proceedings of the original trial were criticised by the European Union, amongst others, after it emerged that the trial was held in closed session with only three judges, a court clerk and prosecutor present. Kambash himself was given only three minutes to defend himself before being sentenced to death. International observers and human rights groups also attacked today's appeal proceedings held in open court uh, about the way the, the, 
the trial was conducted, um, and so on. Uh, and then there were conservative people in, uh, in Afghanistan, Mohammed Jawad, who's a lawyer, who was at today's trial, protested against the reduction of the sentence. He said, this judge is against Muslims. This is a very low sentence. Cambash should be hanged. Five teachers from the University of Balk bore witness that he was against Islam. They saw him downloading and distributing it. Now, it's probably not as uh, there's other, here, other stuff here I should have perhaps chosen to share, but um, these religions that when I was a young person and I studied Islam, one of the courses that I did, uh, we regarded it as sort of moribund and almost ready to die, but there's been such a resurgence and these people have really taken our measure. They know how to um, intimidate us and they've worked out strategies to uh, infiltrate Christian nations and have a bigger and bigger say. And uh, the, the attitude that they have, this is Afghanistan, folks, where we send the Australian army to uh, defend the place against, um, against the uh, Taliban, who are the extremists. This, these judges are not the extremists, these are the judges of the, the nation that we're trying to sort of set up to be some kind of an example of what the world should be like. Uh, two days ago I got a letter from a friend in, um, in Sri Lanka who's alarmed because a bill's going before their parliament right now which is uh, an anti-conversion bill. Um, that same fellow sent me eight pages listing from the public re records Christians who've been killed, raped, mutilated uh, in Sri Lanka um, just over the last two months with a surge of, uh, of um, anti-Christian um, rioting in Sri Lanka. Uh, he's not a, not a uh, he himself is from European and uh, Sinhalese descent, so he's not on the sides, side of the, uh, of the um, Tamils. Uh, there was a meeting by the Evangelical Alliance where the representative of the Evangelical Alliance in India uh, broke down and wept because in the province of Orissa over this last year um, 50,000 Christians have been driven from their homes. 30,000 of them are still in refugee camps, internal refugees in India. Uh, I've um, forgotten how many, uh, somewhere nearly a hundred of them have been killed but uh, the sort of thing that is happening there is the humiliation of Christians in an attempt to convert them back into Hinduism and uh, they're forced to do the purification rites of uh, drinking cow's urine and promising not to be Christian, something or other like that. But, um, yeah, just uh, what I wanted to present here is this beatitude that talks about those who... Blessed are those who are persecuted for Jesus' sake. And previously what I said about the program of God coming to its final climax when Jesus Christ comes back, um, one of the things that is uh, 
revealed to us is that there is going to be this kind of persecution. Jesus expected it, right? Uh, the program actually uh, warns about it as well. And uh, we have the enemy of Satan who opposes anything that we're doing for the sake of Jesus Christ. So what I'm trying to say is our call to belong to the kingdom of God and to be leaves on the tree that are fruitful and contributing to, uh, to the tree and making it what it should be, uh, it's not going to be easy and it's going to get harder and harder and it may well be that in our country before the end comes uh, we're going to be called upon to actually face the kind of persecution that's going on in the rest of the world. Why should we think we're exempt? Is there anything special about us that makes us so that we should be exempt from that sort of thing? I don't think so. So, yeah. Listen to the talks as they come to you uh, later this morning and then tomorrow on uh, being the salt and being the light of the world. Lord Jesus, we commit ourselves to you that uh, this great privilege of belonging to the kingdom of God and being singled out to fulfil something really important in your purposes for the world um, and uh, I guess as well this realisation that eventually we're going to be brought to our full glory in this kingdom but on the way there uh, quite likely to be presented with the challenge of the kind of persecution that's going on in the world. Um, we pray for one another that we might so confirm our position uh, in Jesus Christ that we are prepared for whatever might come and will be lo loyal to you. And we pray for this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.